0: what's up everybody this is paul stinson you are listening to my podcast make it big got some new intro music for you check it out We are back after a somewhat extended delay, but you know, I don't do this full time, and I got schedules, and other people got schedules and whatnot, and so sometimes it takes a little while to get these things rolling. But this week, uh, very excited to have Steve Rosenthal, owner of the legendary recording studio Magic Shop also of The Living Room, uh, performance space in New York City, both of which are now sadly closed, as we will talk about. Uh, yeah, the intro music, that's another strip minor song called Unnatural Lovers, which you can find on our album Movies. Uh, the usual stuff is happening, paulstinsonmusic.com. My band Phantom Fifth has some shows coming up April 27th at the Bowery Electric in New York, and then uh, I think May 8th, 9th? 7th, uh, again at Union Hall in Brooklyn. Go to my website or phantomfifth.com to check that out. So, a little bit of a backstory on the guest today, uh, Steve Rosenthal. I moved to New York, I guess, about a year and a half ago. And right about that time, Dave Grohl's series, uh, the documentary series *Sonic Highways*, was coming out, which was a series where he went around the country to different recording studios and uh, checked them out, and told some stories about them, and then recorded a song in these sort of historic places where all kinds of magic had been made, all kinds of bands had recorded, all kinds of artists talked to the engineers and the owners and people who had recorded there to get a feel for you know what it, what it was like. To, to record there, what it means to what these studios mean to the music that we all know and love. So I thought that was a, that was a cool series in general if you're interested in music at all and want to know anything about how it's made. Uh, there's a very long history, very interesting to me. Um, and the last one in that series actually was at the Magic Shop, which I had never heard of before, before I moved to New York. But the, uh, the last Sonic Highways episode was at the Magic Shop, which is a studio in Soho, was a studio in Soho in Manhattan that opened in 1988, I want to say, by Steve Rosenthal, who we are talking to today. Hosted all kinds of people, probably most famous these days, unfortunately, for being where David Bowie recorded his last two albums, Black Star and The Next Day. But it started back with... Uh, people like Lou Reed, Sonic Youth, The Ramones, uh, Nora Jones, just all kinds of people. We talk about, ugh, we talk about a lot. There are a lot of things coming up in the episode from Rick Rubin to Gigi Allen to, uh, uh, just it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to even comprehend how much we talked about because Steve Rosenthal has such a history in New York and is really such a part of the institution of music in New York. Now, unfortunately, I don't know, uh, for those of you who follow these kinds of things, the Magic Shop has been priced out of New York City. Uh, Steve couldn't talk about it for some legal reasons, but the general story is that um, rent just became too expensive. He is now in a part of SoHo that is no longer artsy. Uh, You know, CBGB's is now John Varvatos. Everywhere is a chain store and the owners of the building— Just thought, well, we don't need a recording studio. We can get a lot more money doing something else. So Dave Grohl even was going to put up money to buy the building. And uh, I won't get into it too much. But sad to say that last Wednesday, that's two days ago, was the last day of the Magic Shop. And Steve was gracious enough to sit down with me the day before it closed. So that would be the second to last day. Uh, He was doing a lot of interviews at that point, which... It's very unfortunate um, that there's suddenly become more interest in the studio now that it's closing (laughs) than there was when, you know, it was threatening to get evicted because now pretty much it's over. The studio is gone. This great historic space is going to be turned into God knows what. Um, All the gear is going elsewhere. But on the bright side, Steve is going to be continuing to do uh, the archiving and restoration work that has won him uh, three Grammys. Uh, He has another one for for mixing, which we'll talk about in here. But that work is going to continue. We talk a lot about that. Um, We talk about a lot of things. This is is a really great episode. I'm really stoked to be able to present it to you. Uh, Thanks so much to Steve, again, for sitting down with me. And I want to get this up now because... (laughs) Uh, One thing that we talk about is people out there, if you have recorded at the magic shop or know someone who has, and they still have masters of yours, you better contact them immediately because that stuff is going away. Uh, There's just nowhere to store it. and it's expensive to keep that stuff around. So anyway, I really hope you guys like this. And without further ado, here's my talk with Steve Rosenthal. No worries. So is this the actual last day of the studio? or?
1: No, the last day of the Shop is tomorrow. It's, it's tomorrow.
0: Yeah. Is there a session, actually? Or is yeah, it just... John and
1: Yellow and Alieska. Yeah? It's uh, the fourth day of their mixing of their record. They recorded their record here last week. Right. And now this week they're mixing it. Wow. And that's going to be
0: the last one. They can put that on the album. Yeah. Well, historic. Well,
1: you know, they're really good, and they're really young, so I kind of like that. Yeah, yeah, the next generation. And the thing is also, John, um, John and Yellow. I mean, he came here, and I think his first session was 1991. Oh, yeah? With the Gigolo Ants. Yeah. So he's been coming here for a boatload of years. So Forever. It's, yeah. yeah. It's great for him to sort of finish it up. So it's... Uh...
0: I gotta imagine guests or people that you know are coming by to sort of pay their last respects. Like a that's sort of what's no been much. happening. Yeah, yeah, people
1: have been showing up, buzzing the buzzer and coming by, or they'll send Kabir or Matt or Chris uh, an email, "Can I come by and stuff?" Yeah, but yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm Check happy it out. to let people come by and take say photos hi and, and yeah.
0: Man, it's hard to believe. Well, let's go back to uh, to earlier times. How did you even get into engineering? Did you start out as a music guy?
1: Playing? Yeah, I was a playing guy. I played a lot. I had a couple of bands in the guitar? late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, I was a guitar player, but pretty awful singer. <laughs> I was in a band with my first wife, and a band called TV Babies, and we put out three records. And uh, And then uh, the thing that kind of actually got me started on engineering was I uh, quit school. I went to New Paltz okay. for college, and I left New Paltz. And then... Um, my friends got a development deal. You Remember those? Things? Oh yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, they don't put do you work. in a
0: studio or together and write some songs, see what you got and yeah. yeah.
1: They don't do that really anymore, but I think yeah. my friends got 5 grand to do a develop have a development deal. Oh, uh, excellent. And uh Here in the city? No. I, well, the band was from the city. Yeah. Right? we were all from the Bronx, but uh, for some crazy reason, the studio that they got hooked up with was in Colorado. It was the studio that, uh, by this band Firefall. Huh. You know that band? That sounds really familiar. You are the woman that I always dreamed yeah. of. You know <laughs> that of yeah. I'm imagining the album cover. Yeah. Chestnut. Was it through the label or something that they had? The yeah, pickup? I think yeah. Columbia Records gave him five grand. No, okay. Is this too noisy? Uh, We can close it. Sure. Yeah. Hey, uh,
0: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close Maybe. this. Guys? Because
1: he's yeah, like well, doing better. this radio thing. I don't think I can close it. Can you move the couch a no, little? Sorry. Get
0: your minions I'll... in here. I, I'm, I had move operation. the couch, man. I had an operation. I don't know how
1: to lift shit. Oh, man. Yeah, not quite. Right. You're lying, Steve. Thanks, guys. I know you're not lying. you want lying. No, lying. lying no, that's what i to do. Thank you. Good luck, bud. All right. Thank you. Oh, they love to yammer
0: in this place. Sure, yeah, yeah. Good. I thought maybe there'd be, like, movers here just carrying everything out the door.
1: <laughs> well, we had the, uh, you know, we took stuff to storage, and then we have the yeah. dumpster that's outside. We I saw the, that, yeah. And we filled a giant 20-cubic-yard dumpster yesterday. Yeah. I mean, I've been here 28 years. It's a long time, so I've collected a lot of crap. Yeah, yeah. Moving
0: in New York, it's always, uh why do I still have that? It gets buried. You don't even know. <laughs>
1: Uh, you know, speaking of John and Yellow, when we were cleaning out some of my uh, closets and, and drawers here, yeah, I found two demos that someone dropped off for him in 1992. Yeah? That I forgot to give him. <laughs> <laughs> so I went upstairs and I gave, I gave him the demos. So He's like, like, What am Danks. I going these now? Yeah, yeah like, <laughs> I, I guess these bands are like not happening anymore. Well, what so. happened? Did
0: you have a whole lot of tape from the early days that you archived here of stuff? Or what did that mean, all here? sort of... Well, because I know when recording tape, a lot of times the artist, well, I guess depending who it is, would leave a backup copy or something at the studio. Well,
1: we not only have backup masters, we have people's masters here, and yeah. they really should come and get them. Yeah, I mean, they only have a couple more days, and I'm not really sure what to do with them, but there are like people's masters are yeah, here. Yeah, I'm sure. Two inch masters, half inch masters. Right, right. We've been trying to reach out to them for like over a year. It's almost been about a year and a half already. Yeah. That we've been sending out notifications. Come and get your tapes. Come and get your tapes. And
0: so. you, an offsite place where you're gonna store anything? I is don't it think so. Now? I
1: don't like want to pay to store. Yeah, no kidding. Stuff. I Not don't think cheap. I want to do that. So yeah, I think they got a couple more days. When is when this air? Sure.
0: <laughs> I better get it out soon. Yeah, it out. <laughs> <Right>. you
1: <laughs> you exactly. two
0: days to get in touch with Steve. <laughs> yeah. Well, sorry. Going back to the development deal in Colorado.
1: Right, okay, so yeah, my friends got this deal, and we got in the car, and we drove out to Colorado, and there were two guys in the band. What year was this? uh, 74, maybe, three, four, something like that. And these two guys really were in a band, and they were really good songwriters. They were my friends from the Bronx. And when we were making the record, one guy really was enjoying making the the record, and the other guy really didn't want to be in the studio. He was really freaked out by the experience. So I sort of jumped in and sort of got involved in the making of the record, even though I didn't know anything. I now, were mean,
0: you playing with them? Is that what you no, went to No, no, I was just
1: sort of their friend. Oh, okay. I wasn't even in the band. Wow. I sort of just came and along. And so, I, you know, being in the studio, I, I, I kind of liked it right off the get-go. You know? Yeah, I, yeah. I liked being in the studio. Some of why I liked being in the studio is, is not about music. Uh, one of the things I liked about The studio, and it's really proven true over the years, was that in the studio, people are really trying to be at their best. Yes, yes. And they're trying to reveal a part of themselves. And whether that's a good part or a bad part, whatever, <laughs> Taking depends. Taking chances, yeah. Uh, it depends the best on who performer. it is. But they're really trying to have like a revealing experience. And so they tend to be more open and more honest. So yep. if you're going to spend a long time in one place, in which you have to do with a job, yes. Yeah. I thought, well, this might be a fun place to hang out in. That's interesting, just to that
0: experience of getting sort of to see other people at their best or working their hardest, that kind of thing. Yeah. And the honest emotions and that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So it's like
1: when you're in the room with somebody, I mean, regardless of what kind of music it is, whether it's like stone or rock, like those Monster Magnet records I did, or Uh Ola Bell, which is like Americana stuff, or, you know, whatever kind of record I've ever worked on, people really want it to be great. And they're really in there trying to make it great and sometimes it's completely frustrated and confusing and sometimes it happens very naturally but it's a really amazing place to see people and to sort of get to know them
0: now did you find because having worked you know but on the other end of recording a lot i always find that you need someone in the studio often to facilitate that. Because sometimes a band doesn't quite know exactly what their strengths are. And even as a performer, you, you need someone else to pull it out. And that's why you have producers usually. Right. But did you, did you ever feel like that's what you wanted to do? Or even as an engineer, that you could sort of connect with the artist and pull out what is special about them?
1: Well, I think it's a really, that's a really good question. And in my case, it's kind of complicated because I did have my crazy band. And but soon I realized I wasn't really very good at singing, and so it seemed a little bit silly. And so you I really have the right producers, dude. yeah, thanks, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's funny on the Facebook, you know, this Facebook post that I put out that so many people saw, some people yeah. were sending me TV babies like photos of the records that yeah. I did, which I thought was insane.
0: <laughs> um, a collector's item,
1: yeah, but anyway, um. That's a really good question. And in my case, I think it was a situation where I wanted to be able to first learn how to really make a good record. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, I had spent some time as an artist making record, but I thought, well, I really want to try to spend more time on the other side of the glass learning about the process of record making. So um, the first studio that I opened up with my... Actually, one of the guys who was in that original band, I was telling you about We opened up a place called Dreamland, and it was on 17th Street here in the city. So this is right
0: after one experience making a record? You're like, yeah, I'll open a studio. No, no, no. This was years and years later. (laughs) All right, after you were late. After I
1: made the record, yeah, yeah, I'm getting out of sequence, sorry. After I made the record, what I did was I came back to New York, and Mm -hmm. I, I was driving a cab. And uh, I decided not to go back to school because it seemed kind of silly. To and me.
0: then taxi driver came out, and no one
1: wanted to be. A and taxi driver. so, well, no, I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was driving around that time. It's because seventy four, seventy five. So I was driving, and uh, there was I wanted to go to engineering school, right? But there was only one school back then. Now audio, you got audio like, engineering, full yeah, sale, yeah. and you got all these amazing places sure. that are kind of stupidly expensive, but. Um, I went to a place uh, called the Recording Institute of America, mm-hmm. and it was $700, and I think it was six or eight weeks. And You're in Manhattan? We, yeah. We yeah. went to Odeo Studios, um, which was on 54th Street, and I got my diploma in in miking guitar amps or something. <laughs> That's classic. <laughs> Completely inane. Yeah. You have and, like a card engineer Yeah, I did. Certified. I have like yeah. a certificate somewhere, yeah. and of course- that certificate really didn't get me any gigs, but any jobs, but I, I was happy I did it so then, after that, I tried to get a job It I was very, very hard to get a job. It took a long time for me to jo- get a job. Finally, I got a job as an apprentice for uh, herb abramson
0: right, pretty good gig. yeah, was, I mean, how many studios were there like where where were you going? back oh my God, I was
1: walking all over the place yeah. so I couldn't get into really any of the big giant ones, yeah, no record plant, you know mm-hmm. um A&R and stuff like that at that point. I couldn't get into any of those. Um, um, So I ended up literally um, just walking around trying to find a job. And then literally I went to the Yellow Pages and looked through the Yellow Pages. And the first studio in the Yellow Pages was A1 Studios. Mm -hmm. And that was Herb Abramson's studio. So I called up and I was like, uh, I'm looking for a job as an engineer. And he literally said, okay, come down tomorrow.
0: (laughs) Sounds like Matt's story with here. <laughs> I know, it was really <laughs> crazy. Thing, so, walking around.
1: I went down and then I ended up working for Herb for more than three years. And uh he taught me really so much about how to make records. You know, he was the third partner of Atlantic Records. Yep. Yes. Yep. Come in.
0: May I Oh
1: shit. Come I on. Can I be? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. P is <laughs> a part of the studio. Uh, right here in <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>, there. <right> <laughs> yes, John and Yellow we were talking about. He's... Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's going to the body. So, um, yeah, so I went and uh, I worked for Herbie, and I worked there for three years. Was he an
0: engineer as well? Yeah. I mean,
1: the stories that Herb would tell was that he was the engineer who recorded in the little office space, Mm -hmm. so they had the office space. Atlantic was first, right, where they moved the desks out of the way at night, and they cut the records. And Uh Herb was sort of the engineer for a lot of those early R&B records. Wow. And so when I met him, it was long after his association with Atlantic, because he had left Atlantic about 1960. Mm -hmm. And I met him, I guess, in 74. I guess it was something like that. But at that point, he had the Atlantic Records console, the bigger Atlantic Records console, which he bought from them. And that's the console that I learned on. It had giant rotary faders (laughs) and... and very little EQing. So it was mostly about, you know, mic technique. He had sure. a very specific way to mic the drums. I could only use three mics on the drums. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent a couple of years having to do things exactly the way he wanted to.
0: And did you sort of learn both the uh, magic and the limitations of,
1: of that technique
0: and well, think funny. about what else you would want to try?
1: Well, it was funny because what we mostly were doing were, like, Atlantic-type artists. Mm-hmm. And so I was doing lots of uh, soul bands and stuff. Right, And right. within the context of those records where you had, like, all of these people in the room at the same time... Mm-hmm. John, you made some soul records, yes? Or no. No, John didn't any soul.
0: <laughs> Zero soul. Black soul. No, no um... But you did
1: Even from the beginning?
0: Uh, no, I guess I But did didn't you just tell a
1: story about Sly Stone and Earth, yeah, Wind, and on Fire? I
0: like, Earth, Wind, and Fire,
1: a little, like, one day. But I also, um, I worked on some, there was a time, like, in the late 80s when I did work on a couple of soul records, but it was, like, a, a chick named Malira or something. It was, you know... Yeah, yeah. fleeting. Definitely. Yeah, fleeting for sure. I was more like a definitely a rock guy. Oh, okay. Uh Cool. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's oh, really cool. The guy was Lamel Yumes. That oh. was the shit. Uh, the stuff I was doing at um Times Square. Ah. Uh, uh, okay. That was a very strange era cool. for me because uh, I was definitely not in my wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Wow. You know, uh, rupert Hunt? No, not rupert Hunt. Yeah. This, uh, Perry, Richard Perry. Yeah. Engineer for him one day. Wow. For like 4 hours. Oh my goodness. At, at Hit factory is really weird. That's pretty amazing. He How was it, yelled <laughs> <to> you <laughs> 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 he yelled? You yelled. You yelled. LA's chill. Right. That's what so chill. A hold here. hold here. Okay, bye. <laughs> oh my kid. Oh, okay, hold on one pause. second. All right. Yeah, so mostly with Herbie I did like R&B records that and with full yeah. band, so it's like piano bass, drums, two guitars. Horn players, background vocals, lead vocal, all at once. And
0: where is A One? It was to? it
1: was on Seventy Sixth Street okay. in the Milburn Hotel. That's the, I think he moved after I was gone, but uh-huh. that was the one that I worked in. Okay, it. and uh, it was just great, and I learned a real lot, and I, I'll never forget the day uh, when he didn't show up. So, uh, so. He, the way it worked was like usually I would set up the session once I knew what I was doing. Yeah. You know, usually I yeah. would set up the session and then, then he would come in and he would do his thing and it was all good. So this one day Lee Fields was there. You know, he's a pretty well-known guy. Yeah. He's had a nice sort of career renaissance, and uh, he showed up with his full band. You know, just as I sort of outlined it, and I called up and I said, I, "You know, where are you, where are you?" And he's like, "I'm not coming." And I was like, "What?" You're not coming? He's like, "You got
0: it, kid." Yeah, he's
1: like, "I think you can do this," and I was like, "Agabaga, I'm not sure I can really do." How this. many years in was that? Probably about a year and a half, maybe oh, okay. two years yeah.
0: or so. Throw you in, and
1: he That's just cool. dropped me in, and I was completely panic stricken. And somehow I made it through the day. I didn't have an assistant. We didn't have assistance.
0: Now, what was it? Was it 8-track, 16? Ah,
1: uh, it was 12-track. 12,
0: 12, okay. It was
1: two Scully machines, an 8-track and a 4-track, cell synced together. Oh. And I'll never forget, like, the buttons, like the the buttons to press play and stop. Sure. They were made of wood.
0: <laughs> that's pretty old school.
1: <laughs> it was crazy. And so the buttons were made of wood, and it had toggle switches. And in order to punch in, you had to flip the toggle switch and hit the buttons at the yeah. same time. yeah. It was really, really difficult. Of course, I learned how to really punch fast. Sure. You know, because I could punch 16th notes on that stuff. Like, you know, when I finally got a real studer or something, it, yeah. was, it was really easy.
0: Now, with the soul bands, would it, would it be horns as well? Yeah, live oh, horns. Okay. Horns. All at once. All, all at the, once. Yeah. Everything was all done at once. Tracks, it was yeah. like a
1: live document. Yeah. Basically. And, uh, I mean, it came out okay. They seemed to be happy. I, I didn't think it was all that great. But. Yeah, I stayed there. I did a record with him uh, for Otis Blackwell, the guy Mm -hmm. that wrote all those great songs for Elvis, like Mm -hmm. Return to Sender, Don't Be Cruel, Fever. So I did a record. And these are
0: still coming out on Atlantic? He still had somehow. No, these were on his own
1: label. He had like a sub label Uh, that he would put stuff out of. Got it. So so then I worked at Herbie's for a while, and then I got fired, and then. (laughs) I went to work at a market research place, and then I put together a small little a track studio on 13th Street with my friend from the Bronx, and that was called Dreamland. All right. Excuse me, it was on 17th Street. It was 13 East 17th Street. And it was the top floor, Mm -hmm. and it was really awesome, and I lived in the back of the studio. Oh, nice. And I got to do sessions in my bathrobe, which was really the best. (laughs) That's a classic. It was just (laughs) really awesome to be able to, like go um, we're like
0: 77 or later
1: yeah this is that's right okay. this is like 1977 78 um, well, and so that scene
0: was like you know the beginning of punk rock. Oh my god, that, it was awesome! Like yeah. I did
1: Gigi Allen in my studio. Yeah. And, um I did. We did lots of punk rock stuff, lots of crazy new wave stuff. It was. And really were you fun. already
0: plugged into that scene, or is it more just word of mouth? Like, hey, there's this crazy engineer. Well, who, we never really advertised. It yeah. was all. It was yeah.
1: really all word of mouth. Yeah, and uh, we never really advertised. And you know, I was so really into the particular uh, DIY sort of aesthetic that yeah. was really growing then that. Uh, my first wife and I put together a label which was Rockin Horse and we put out records of bands and stuff like that. Uh-huh. We were really kind of were rejecting sort of the major label thing and yeah. we were like, okay, yeah. you can really do this whether, you know, you know, without having the sort of stamp of approval of some And were you still you know, playing? Okay. I was yeah. still playing okay. and I had some records out during that we you yeah, playing you know,
0: punk rock. then? Or? No,
1: we were playing like synth pop. That's kind of what my shtick was. Wow. It was like a little ahead of your time. It Listened was kind of like synth pop. Can, yeah, I you know it's kind of silly, but but it was fun. And then we had really some really cool bands on the label, and um, so we did that. And I was there basically from '78 to '83, maybe. Yeah, are any of those albums still in print? I of uh, my labels? Yeah. No, oh, none of would, them are in print. Right, you can okay. see some of them. Sometimes I see some of them show up on eBay and yeah. stuff. Yeah. But no. I mean the staff here has digitized them and they're always bugging me about putting them up, but I really haven't had a chance. You're like, you got enough. <laughs> now <laughs> you that I, well now that I'm gonna be unemployed well, sure, in now. a couple of <laughs> yeah. weeks, maybe maybe I can do that.
0: Writing your biography. And- oh no no no. <laughs>
1: But yeah, it was really fun. That was a really fertile period. Yeah. You know, I've always sort of believed that any time the record companies are confused, you get the best music. Yeah. So that was a period where they were very confused. They didn't really understand the punk rock thing. They didn't really understand the new wave thing. It took them a while before they... Processed it and started turning out these new wave bands, yeah. with skinny ties, yeah. and all of that crap. Yeah, but doing all the coffee bands. Yeah. Right. At first, it was you know it was it was a lot of really innovative and sort of edgy stuff.
0: So were you playing around the city at that time? Yeah. With some I of played, the other bands. I played CBs. A I, played, a lot. I played yeah, yeah I can great
1: Gilder sleeves, all those places. Yeah, nice. Yeah, it was wow, fun. I had played CBs in 1974. I played really early. Oh wow. I played. Yeah. Hilly. I went and auditioned to Hilly with my electric guitar yeah, without a band. And he said, like, what what, what am I going to do with you? I think he said, what the... F- <laughs> yeah, okay, you can I say gonna- that. It's a podcast. Okay, but what yeah. the <laughs> fuck am I going to do with you? And I said, I don't know. And he said... So, Did you have
0: a band at that point?
1: No, I didn't have oh. a band. And I just went. I really wanted to play CBs. And, um, and so I played some songs for him. And he said, oh, I know what to do with you. So he had me play while the bands were setting up. Oh, yeah. So I stood in front of the bands, and I played with my little Fender amp. Yeah. And while the bands were setting up their drum kits and stuff like that, and then when they were done, I got kicked off. Uh, That's great. (laughs) Well. Yeah, it was fun, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. I was never that good. It was clear that I was never that good. (laughs)
0: Were you, were you making a living, basically, as an engineer then? Yes. Kind of from the beginning? Dreamland,
1: yeah, I was making a li- Well, first for Herbie. Eventually, he paid me. At first, he didn't pay me. Yeah. But eventually, he started paying me. Okay. And then, um, then with Dreamland, yeah, we were making enough money to pay the rent and have a wife. Well, and back then that's when you could actually live in New York. Cause it was kind of like a
0: war zone, and you know.
1: Yeah, I mean Seventeenth Street was pretty funky, and yeah. and you know the rents were much more affordable. Uh, you know, people wonder why like, there's not a lot of scenes and stuff. I mean, there. I suppose if you go out to a story tonight, there's probably some really cool bluegrass stuff in a bluegrass scene, sure. and I'm sure in yeah. Bushwick there's some really great, yeah, yeah, cool shit going on. But I think in Manhattan it's pretty much done. I yeah. think, you know, one of the things you need is you need time <clears throat> and you need time to figure out sort of whether you, what it is you do. you
0: like, got to be living cheaply and have, like you say, time. You're not tied to a day job and you have some freedom financially to, you know, take yeah, some chances and, yeah, do some shit that's not going to sell or not necessarily yeah. going to make you money.
1: My wife, Jennifer, says, you know, you need, time, you need time to fail. And I yeah. think that's really true. You know, yeah. you need time to figure out what you, what's not working, and then eventually you figure out what the hell it is that's going to be good. So, yeah. back in back in the old days, back, <laughs> um, back in the good days, <laughs> back in the old days when, yeah, um, yeah, Manhattan was like that, and there were tons of areas yeah. that you could still do that. Obviously, the Lower East Side one. Soho is one here Where you could do that Clearly nobody wanted To be in Tribeca At that point Right completely right. A ghost town Yeah So <clears throat> Excuse me Yeah so you get These vibrant arts Communities And music communities And And clearly what happens Is that they eventually Get priced out Yes buddy Oh I just want to listen it's Oh okay. cool yeah. You can sit down somewhere. If you, you can want. come and listen Find somewhere it's just <laughs> Babbling the way I babble at home <laughs> More of the same <laughs>
0: What So did you end up sort of becoming, by default, a producer on some records? Or was it... Did they bring... Because, you know, punk bands back then rarely had a producer.
1: If they did, it was just like a friend, you know. Yeah, that's a really good question. Stuff. That's a really good question, and the answer is completely yes. Yeah. Because, first of all, there weren't a lot of people who could, like, be a punk rock producer because that was almost a... What is it called? An oxymoron?
0: Uh, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so yeah.
1: there weren't a lot of people who wanted to do that, and then... They did really need somebody in the room to sort of shepherd what was going on. Yeah. Because, you know, it's funny, like, if you listen to the Pistols record, or obviously a Clash record, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are really sort of well thought out records, Heavily even produced. though yeah. there's like a sense of abandon, right? That's the whole thing. It had to have this sense of abandon. But if you think about it and you listen to them, they're pretty well done. Oh, yeah. But like most of the things that we got at Dreamland were not like that. They were really (laughs) raw. They were freaking crazy. They, they, you know, the drummers didn't really play in time very well. You know, the song structures weren't sort of figured out yet. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, the sort of, the...
0: the Well, a lot of it was just more about the energy and the feeling. And the song was like, you know, well, we don't want to be slick because that's what the big record labels are
1: doing. Yeah. Yeah, and it was fun. But
0: some of them were writing really good songs where you're like, well, hey, wait a minute. You know, if you did the chorus again, <laughs> could be better. Yeah, so oh, I think
1: you're right. There was a lot of sort of helping and, you know, to a certain extent. I mean, sometimes they were like, you know, no way. I, I don't care. But yeah. Lots of them were like, okay, can you help me sort of sort out why this doesn't sound very good?
0: And what about when you worked for Herb? Was he the producer?
1: Was Herb the producer? Yeah. Yeah, almost all all the records Herb would be the producer. Okay. And the classic sort of sense of, like, arrangements, you know, the length of the tune, who was going to play, who was going to sing where, in in a very sort of classic sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you
0: consider yourself primarily an engineer or producer or, I mean, putting aside the entrepreneurial aspect... That's yeah, a really a funny owner. thing.
1: These days I consider myself like an archivist. Well, now, cuz I spend yeah. so much time doing yeah. that. But I think it really if you like look at sort of way my career arc has gone, uh-huh, there was clearly a point where I was just engineering yeah. people's records. Yeah. And then there was clearly a point where I was just producing people's records. There was kind of a point where I would do both, but it was really not a good idea. Mm. you know it's just too much you can only pay attention
0: to so much at once yeah yeah
1: so I didn't I did a couple of records where I produced and engineered and I really didn't like it okay and as soon as I realized that I started you know having one of the guys here at the studio just take over that whole part of it yeah and there was like I trust you you know if you want to talk about something like you know, sounds and stuff, we can talk about it, but I just want to think about the music. It's a different experience.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with recording because I love the creative process, and I love having the amazing finished mix. It's everything in the middle that's really technical <laughs> I can really get to be a drag. Because you have to pay such close attention and listen so hard that yeah. to little things that you can't hear, yeah. you know, the, the entirety of the song. It's I good to exactly have help. I you mean. Yeah, you know, it's
1: good to have help. It's yeah. good to have somebody you know people in the room that you trust well, what's and, the oh, sorry go ahead no no i'm saying that i think like a lot of the records great records i mean you know it's even like phil or somebody He had larry levine there you know i mm-hmm. mean there's always somebody helping somebody to sort of you know uh, george martin yeah jeff Emmerich and then ken scott is always yeah. like sort of a a team thing where yeah. people are uh, or working together, I think works best. Yeah,
0: I guess Rick Rubin is famous for knowing nothing whatsoever about the technical aspect, or even really playing. <laughs> you know, he was here.
1: He was here a few times, and mm. you know, I don't. I wasn't in really in the room with him. I can tell you a funny Rubin story, though. I, yeah. When the first time he came here, I walked in the room, and he said, "Can you get me some coffee?" <laughs> he thought he thought I was the intern. Because I was... Uh, this was like 95 or something. Yeah. I, I guess I looked really young. What was the session? <laughs> I think it might have been the School of Rock soundtrack, maybe. Oh, really? Or some, may, Maybe my decades Funny. were screwy. I don't know. But he, he was here... <laughs> He was here, and I know he wanted his Mexican food all the time. Sure, and, sure. And yeah, so he, he said, like, can you get me some coffee? And I was like, yeah, sure. okay." And I think I walked out of the room to get him the coffee, and then I suppose somebody told him that I was the owner. Yeah. So when I came back in with the coffee, he was like, oh, I'm really sorry. And I was like, it's cool. Don't worry about it. You know? Why, you know, <laughs> now you
0: got your coffee. It's fine. It's fine, yeah. <laughs> well, who did, when did you finally sort of, I guess you were always in demand, but at some point you kind of outgrew your space. The eight track and whatnot. Well, actually,
1: no. What happened was is that my life really was transformed when uh, my my first son was born. That's okay. My second son, quote, oh, right excellent. there. Um, you were but, transformative too. I'm sure. Right. <laughs> he really was. But at that point, my life was transformed by my first son, Graham, and he was born. Mm-hmm. And when he was born, he had real problems, and he, you know, he had a really tough time of it. And so uh, everything kind of stopped. Okay. And my son was born, yeah. and uh, and my first wife and I just basically spent years, really, just trying to figure out how to take care of him, mm-hmm. and, and it really was um, uh, a, a very difficult time. And so, were you still living in the back of the studio? No, time? I got okay. I got, got My partner kicked me out in like '83. Mm-hmm. He was like, "I want to have fun. I want to do sessions in my bathrobe," you know? <laughs> yeah. So uh, we moved to Long Island City. Um, and now it's all cool and hip and, you know, fun. It wasn't that much fun yeah, yeah, yeah. when I was there. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of like things for me kind of stopped after, um, after Dreamland. And then I, we sort of split as a partner. Mm-hmm. And then I went out trying to get, a couple of years later, I went out trying to get work. Yeah, yeah.
0: Up to, like, 85 or something? Yeah. Did you end up going back to work for a studio, or did did you finally... Yeah, okay. I, oddly
1: enough, I ended up working... Uh, once again, I couldn't get a job in, like, one of the legitimate joints because I had... My resume was sort of odd. Yeah, yeah. Right, because... Soul I, bands,
0: punk rock. Punk rock
1: bands, you know. Break, it, yeah. Right, it was just sort of weird, so I wasn't doing, like, mainstream, like, records and rock records and stuff yeah. like that, yeah. so... Did you uh, have
0: any real desire to do that?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, everybody... Like, I remember in 1976, I wanted to work at A&R, mm-hmm. you know, because there were so many amazing records. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I did get a job there, actually, for about three weeks.
0: <laughs> when, when was this?
1: It was about 1976 or so. I don't know. It's yeah. all a little vague. But, yeah, I got hired. I got hired, and and, again, because my career was so weird they sent me in the basement splicing cables <laughs> so, that's what i did yeah so i spliced cables for i think three weeks yeah and then and I. you couldn't I, take it anymore i completely lost, like, it. I really lost it this isn't worth
0: it rather go back to market research
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly i was happier you know just being a coder than splicing wires and stuff yeah so, yeah so where were we like where's that 85 86 sure so, oh, yeah, where I ended up working on, Lee enough, was I, uh, there was a rental company uh-huh. that took over, like, this small studio on 54th Street in uh-huh. the same building where Studio 54 was. Oh, okay. And so, uh, they had all this gear, and they had a recording studio that no one wanted to use, and so I started working out of this studio for Rita and Bill, who owned the toy specialists.
0: Doing recording there, or Lent? Yeah, yeah actually, doing to... recording in that okay. room. Okay okay
1: literally in that room it had been a studio before owned by the Bananti family and so we we i i sort of set up shop there and who was
0: who was recording there
1: who did i record yeah well i mean in it, i recorded like sort of i had my own clientele which was sort of mm-hmm. i was cultivating and okay so it was mostly people that i had uh, known and bands and stuff that I was working with. Sure, yeah. I did that uh, rock band attention. And I did a bunch of soul records. Yeah, I mean it was kind of a fun place, and I that's where I learned how to do MIDI stuff, <laughs> because yeah. they were renting all this new MIDI gear. Oh yeah. So I got to try to play with all this MIDI stuff, and, uh-huh. I, and I learned how to do it. Are know? we into
0: the ADAT era yet? Or, uh, no, no, not quite? quite right oh, okay. okay. This is
1: like sort of like... Uh, well, I guess late 80s. Yeah. This is right. like Lin-9000 and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, Oberheim systems oh, yeah. and sort of that sort of okay. stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I learned that's how so to use thing. all that stuff. I mean, you know, yeah. as an engineer back then, you sort of had to know how to use that.
0: Definitely. I mean, you've got to keep up with the technology because the bands expect it. Yeah,
1: no. and and that's when things started shifting towards making, you know, records that were more machine based, yeah. and less live based. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I wasn't happy doing that stuff. I tried to work at Unique for a while. That was a place where there were a lot of, sort of, hip hop records. And yeah, I don't know if they were called hip hop yet. I don't know. Um, and uh, I tried to work up there, but that didn't really work
0: all that well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, eventually, was it just like I got to open my own studio? This, you know.
1: Well, I was working. Yeah, see, I you was, had
0: a big enough. People sort of knew you. It sounds like you had yeah, somewhat of yeah. a clientele.
1: Yeah, you know? and I think I had already started working a little bit on the early Stone stuff. Uh huh. Um, the first doing the remastering. I, yeah, the first yeah. time I started doing it with Andrew Oldham. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was this this sort of sense that it was like now or never to build a place. Yeah, and so. Um, I went and searched for a partner, um, and I found a partner. Uh, it was this gentleman named George Hirsch. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, together, uh, he sort of checked me out for about six months, looked into all of my stuff, sure. and then after about six months, he was like, okay, let's do this together. Great. So between uh, mostly his money and some of mine, uh, we decided to build a studio. How,
0: going back, how did you get into the Stones remastering
1: stuff? I met Andrew at another studio that I was working at. It Uh was called ODO. And... (laughs) Andrew was kind of wild back then. I I, I can't really get very specific about what he was doing or not doing. But he was pretty nuts back then. And I met him, and we just got along really well, and he was doing some stuff. I remember an early session with him uh, at Unique where I was working on Mary and Faithful stuff, Uh like 60s stuff. And, you know, Andrew just, he was just so spaced. It was crazy. (laughs)
0: Because you've done a ton of those, like 22 of their first... Like yeah, what?
1: those I did here in the Blue Room. Okay. That okay. was like 2002. Yeah. So this is like 16 years before that. Yeah. That I was doing stuff with Andrew. And uh, he's great. I love him. He taught me so much. He taught me so much about like artists and how to treat artists and what they're, <clears throat> what they're sort of like and what they need and... <laughs> He's like amazing. What is one of
0: his pieces of wisdom? That's what I gotta oh,
1: hear. my goodness. There are so many. I mean, he has a very tough viewpoint. If the artist asks you to get them coffee. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's a tough guy. But he, I really learned a lot about him. I think there's a really misguided perception of what he did. Mm-hmm. And like, I've heard lots of Stone's tapes. You know, unreleased stuff. And I've heard lots of studio chatter. Mm -hmm. And Andrew was involved in the making of those records. Sure. Tons of times I hear him going, you know, faster, slower. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's this, what's that? So this sort of conception that he wasn't is, is bullshit. Yeah. He was. Yeah. And I've heard it
0: was he pretty tough then well i don't you mentioned he was a tough character but
1: was his kind sort of wisdom to be tough with the artists or well i think one of the things that you know, that was interesting about the the way he looked at the stone stuff was that it was like a living thing to him and mm-hmm. he wanted to still continue to work on it and yeah. think about it and stuff yeah. where like i tend to be like more like a preservationist where it's like i don't want to screw around with it like basically, I feel like it's my job to keep the timestamp of when it was originally mm-hmm, done, and mm-hmm. I want to make sure that if I'm going to, like for example, when Kabir and I mix Elvis Presley, right? So mm-hmm. we've been doing a lot of Elvis Presley mixing. It's like, well, this record's made in this this recording was made in 1971, for example. I really don't want it to sound like a record that was made in 2016. Yeah, yeah. I want it to be time stamped like a record that was made in 1970.
0: Is that partly, though? Also, I mean, based upon the gear that you have at the studio, you can do something like that. You know
1: what? I've done that in places besides the magic shop. Okay. It's really a matter of how you hear stuff. Can you do me a favor? She got me a, a drink. You can have some too, if you want. I'm you want half of my mozzarella sandwich? No. Anything? After we're done, I can get you some soup or something. Just just ask Anne. She's in. She should be in my office just you know the half and half thing what is it? Anne has it oh. okay
0: <laughs> so it's more like a producer's aesthetic almost
1: well no it's i don't know producer engineer i producer, mean it's but... like it's about listening and yeah. it's about understanding like what were the techniques they had then mm-hmm. and what part of those techniques can you duplicate yeah. Yeah. and how can you get the 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 reverbs to feel the way they did and sound the way they did what was the sort of EQ sensibility that they have mm-hmm. lots of times it's really weird like you know you're sitting and working on a record from 1956 and you thanks Coley, and and you have like some sort of modern EQ and it's just not going to work yeah, right. There yeah. was no sculpting the the thing in the way that you can with a modern parametric. So
0: well, that's where it goes back to what you're talking—the mic placement, which you know you have the historical perspective to know how things were done. You know, at least yeah, going back that's to true. I never thought
1: about that, but you're right. I guess yeah, that, I guess that's kind of true.
0: Where you can imagine, you know, if they're recording at Sun or something, that well, the setup was probably like a mic, you know.
1: (laughs) That's right. And that well, I just did the Concert by the Sea. Yes. Yeah. I I got nominated for Yami for um, for doing this new version of Concert by the Sea, Mm -hmm. where we found the other half of Concert by the Sea. Right. right? Literally, we found it in a storage locker on 25th and 12th Avenue, (laughs) and and that was seven and a half mono yeah one microphone wow and that is one of the most iconic jazz records of all time yeah so it was really challenging to get it to sound better and i worked with uh jamie herworth the plangent guy the plangent process guy Mm -hmm. on getting the speed fixed and getting all the wow and flutter out of the thing yeah and then but you know the original audio was compromised in, in, a, in a very unique way. And so I didn't try to, like, sort of reinvent the wheel. Yeah. But I wanted to sort of get it speed corrected finally. Sure. And then once, it's funny, because once you get the speed right, you get all this phase right. hmm Right? Once the thing is playing at the damn correct speed, so many of the phase problems that are happening because it's wowing and doing stuff go away yeah and then you can sort of go in and shape the thing right right but it's really interesting to be you know you got one track you got the piano bass drums and the audience right (laughs) so it's it's really challenging i've worked on a number of things many many things that were uh mono uh we mastered the thing in mono
0: That's interesting.
1: Yeah, it never became two tracks until the final, absolute final moment that it had to.
0: Well, some of it, I'm sure, is just you can't make it sound like it was recorded yesterday. It wasn't. (laughs) So you have to sort of clean it up as much as you can to make it preserve the clarity of it and make it listenable. But it's still going to be an artifact, it seems to me, of that time and how it was recorded. And And that's that's what's cool about it. Right. Sorry.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you're you're hundred percent right. Sorry yeah. I babbled over you, but Oh no no no. You're completely right. That is what's cool about it. And you know, lots of times people are misguided in, in the way that they deal with vintage and classic recordings and they try to modernize them and usually that's awful. Like there's nothing worse. I hate like when they take a seventies record like uh like I don't know, like a Crosby still's a Nash record or something that's basically dark, it's basically warm, it's basically fat, and all of a sudden there's this like phony high end on it. yeah. yeah I'm yeah. like, I, 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 I don't wanna hear that. Yeah. You know, the snare drum is not that important. Yeah. It wasn't that important in nineteen seventy one.
0: Well it seems like maybe a lot of that started when we got into the digital era and everyone's like, Well digital's better and we're gonna remaster all these things with using digital and you know, it just I don't didn't know. it never I mean, worked.
1: Digital is always like the digital approximation of everything. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I think here's what I think. There are some amazing tools that have been developed now that you can use on on damaged audio and that weren't around. Yeah. The amazing tools. Very affordable tools. mm mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think that's incredible. And I think that Uh, things we can do now in terms of restoring records and tapes, there's no way we could have done those five years ago, seven years ago. Yeah. So I think, you know, there are some really wonderful opportunities and tools now digitally. So it's not like I'm like a Luddite. Believe me, I use digital things to fix stuff all the time.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: But... I think you want to, you know, return at the end to sort of that sort of warmer analog feeling. Yeah. If that was the original recording.
0: Well, I guess we'll talk about this more. But, I mean, do you see that there's a move away just because of the cheapness and the availability of digital audio workstations and anyone can do anything at home now? Um do you think that's leading to sort of the demise of actual studios and people who actually know how to record stuff?
1: Well, you know, the, the, the demise of, and, and you know, destruction of studios has been going on for a while now, and there's like a multiple of reasons. The things that worries me most about like the recording at home thing yeah and doing it all yourself, is that there are very few people that are Stevie Wonder. Yeah,
0: or, exactly, yeah. There are very <laughs> few
1: people who are Prince. Yeah. There are very few people who are Stevie Winwood. You know, people or Paul McCartney, mm-hmm. who can play everything. Yeah. In a really compelling and unusual and special way. Right. So... I mean, I think one of the reasons why a lot of it's so samey is because a lot of it is auto-corrected and they're using things that are pre-programmed Standard and yada, yada. And yeah. So, you know, that's the thing that I sort of worry about in terms of, like, this idea of, you know, creating all your music in your living room, I mean, you know, at home. The other thing is, like, demand shop has always been based on the idea that music is a communal, a communal thing. Mm. In other words... It's a bunch of people, men and women, in a room together playing. Yeah. And then sort of the product of what they come up with is their record. Yeah, yeah. So it's like a completely different way of doing it. Maybe that way is not the way anybody wants to make music anymore. How the hell do I know? I mean, I'm freaking 62 years old.
0: (laughs) You know, I'm
1: not like a cutting-edge like dude who's selling records right now. Well, yeah, I mean,
0: I think it just comes down
1: to the
0: performance really cuz i guess i don't mind the idea of creating stuff entirely in the box and digitally if you're not trying to make it sound like you were a band recording in a space right you know you're using the computer for what it's good at which is doing something that sounds artificial yeah. um sure. if you really want to be a band and there still are many bands that are sort of traditional instruments people actually playing live the notion of recording at home it becomes a lot more difficult i think to get a drum yeah. sound or to get a guitar sound if yeah, you, you want it to sound,
1: yeah. you know, warm and full. Those are applications where you need to come with some joint and set up. But yeah, I mean, it, <clears throat> that's the thing I don't, I don't really know. Like sort of the kind of music that's popular now yeah. is mostly machine-based. Yes. Yeah. A lot like it was when I first opened up the Magic Shop. True. You know, I opened up this joint right in the middle of Madonna land. <laughs> and it was all MIDI and MIDI and yeah. machines and MIDI, MIDI, MIDI. And, and here
0: you're in here with Rupert Neve putting together this <laughs> giant console. And I was
1: like building my console. I built the live room and I built the studios built on this enormous Neve console. From It was already 17 years old when I got
0: yeah. it. Yeah. How did, did you have a relationship with Rupert Neve going back further? No, no, oh, no. no,
1: no. God, I was nobody to, you know. Oh, okay. To. I mean, Rupert is like think about him he's like jesus or I uh, well i was
0: gonna say because... no. <laughs> but somehow you got him can oh okay. stop, for one second? Yeah, yeah, yeah. stop for one second so yeah what so how did uh so you got the partner and you decided to open shop did you look around a lot for a space or it was like well
1: soho that's a shithole we can get something yeah. cheap there <laughs> no no that's a really good question and <clears throat> and you know why i know the answer now is because uh in packing up having to pack up all my stuff Uh i've gone and gotten uh my notebooks out and and scheduling books and all this stuff and in there uh uh, there's a one notebook which literally sort of shows all of the places that i walked to so where i went from the where the towers were um, across town up broadway then to center street up to Houston, mm-hmm. right? Then all the way across to the river again, and then down. And I literally walked up and down the blocks. It took three months maybe or so. And each day I would take like a different set of blocks.
0: And looking in listings, like commercial There were no listings. listings. Oh, I was going to say. Yeah, it
1: wasn't really like that. Then. Yeah, It was more like down here anyway. People just would put signs out. Okay. And yeah, I mean, sometimes there would be like a real estate broker or whatever, but mm-hmm. I tried to stay away from the brokers as much as I could yeah and so in this notebook I found I don't know the 20 or 30 spaces that eventually I called up about and and yeah. went to see and tried to get and in the book this one was my first choice really yeah pretty much right away and the reason was I wanted to find a place to make to have great drums like to me like great rock records are all about great drums sure yes? yeah <clears throat> So in order to have great drum sounds, you need high ceilings. Mm-hmm. And I, so I needed a space that had high ceilings and no columns. Yeah. Because most of the spaces downtown had high ceilings, but they had columns.
0: Ah, oh, right. So yeah.
1: this, as soon as I saw this space, I walked in. There was nothing here. There was nothing upstairs. What did it used to be? It was a photographer's loft. Okay. And uh, Charles Collum owned it. And... Um, there was a big projector in where the live room is now, mm-hmm. and then everything else was basically empty. He had lived on the floor above. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I spent months looking around all this area trying to find spaces. Right. And you came back to this and still available? I trailer? came back, yeah, and this yeah. was available, and it was really affordable. It was $3,700 Uh huh. for... What was almost like 4,000 square feet.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so it's the live room, and then down here, and then... What, I, is there more up above, or no?
1: Yeah, there's the old stuff up above, yeah. and then here, down here, there's this room, and then the blue room, and then the mm-hmm. red room, and then okay. there's actually a shop behind that as well. Oh, okay.
0: All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. And did you already have your site set on the Neve console, or a Neve console, or that was sort of the next thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I really, right away, there wasn't much thinking about it really i knew i had used the neve mike priest and eqs um if you think about it in those days their consoles were being broken up Mm -hmm. a lot that sort of was the fad you take a vintage neve you break it up you steal the eqs the mike priest yeah so i had used a bunch of neve mike priest and eqs and i completely fallen in love with them so I pretty much knew I wanted to have a Eve console. Um, now, were there many of them around? That's a really great question. I mean, and I know, you know the history of this is interesting. <laughs> In my book, I have a list of all of the ones. I didn't remember this at all. I have a list of all the ones that were available at How'd that time. How would you even find them? Time. <clears throat> I searched all the studio mags. Uh-huh. I did, I, I'll show it to you. I'll show you the thing later. And I had... Um, this list like of like 30, 40 Neves that were available at the time, and then I called each studio to see whether they would be interested in selling the console, and oddly enough, I called Sound City.
0: <laughs> the one that Dave Grohl
1: now has? And, yeah, the yeah, one yeah, that yeah. Dave ended up buying. Funny. And, and I put a maybe next to that one <laughs> in my book, it's, there's something that says maybe next to that one. So anyway, I, for some reason, buying one here didn't work out, so I decided I would go to England and try to find one in England. Okay. Just sight unseen? Just, like, get on a plane to London? And yeah, I went on an Eve hunt, basically.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: that sounds fun. Yeah, it was a blast. Yeah. And I stayed there for, oh, three and a half weeks or so. Uh-huh. And I went and saw a bunch of them. And... Um, Alexander Fulcher, who owned the one that I ended up getting, he had a studio in the East End of London. He had two vintage Neves. He had the one that I had, Uh got, and then he had the conch desk, like the original Kinks conch desk. Okay. Which I think had 1064s or 1062s. It was something incredibly exotic and really beautiful. Right. And I just chose this one because I had use this series EQ before
0: and you were familiar sure yeah. sure well and then how did the other part come about I heard you found it in a hospital or something in yeah
1: the other Scotland <laughs> something really bizarre yeah there's a poster <laughs> of it here it was in a hospital in Cardiff okay in Wales after it, yeah after right. it left the BBC Uh huh. that's where it went and they only used three faders I'm not exaggerating. What they were they thinking? Used, they used the turntable yeah. and then the, you know, the, the microphone.
0: Did you get any stories why they thought they needed a huge knee? I don't in know, hospital? but
1: the broker really was really smart because he convinced them that they didn't want this old piece of crap. They wanted a Mackie. <laughs> sure. Well. <Right. laughs> so, yeah, what happened was basically um, someone walked into the control room with a picture of another one. Because I had the 32 input, and then yeah. I used to use like a little and sidecar. Mm-hmm. And somebody walked in with a picture and literally said, uh, I think you probably want this. And Nat Priest, <clears throat> who was in my basement in those days, was like a tech here. He was like, yes. And Nat actually put up the money to buy the other half of the console. Okay. And the two of us went to England together. Uh-huh. Literally, we were on the plane the next day. To, to buy this console. And, and we probably paid a little bit more than we should have paid, but right, right. you know the idea of being able to enlarge the console was pretty incredible. And so he did the work. Okay. And then Rupert helped him design how the buses would be joined. and all Well, that's
0: that. what I was going to say, because my first question would be, well, sure, you're going to have two boards, and who's going to know how to put them together?
1: Yeah, Rupert helped.
0: He had come here in 1991. To the Magic Shop? Yeah, he okay. had come
1: to see the console.
0: Now, did he do it sort of by ma- like here schematic, bus wise, and that kind of thing, or did you, you mean meet ha- him in you England? Mean, you mean with Nat?
1: Yeah. Well, he had all of the design drawings. For right. Him. He of has all the design drawings for his consoles. Okay. So he literally went back to the design drawings and said, "This is the way you should do this." Okay. Got because it. Because there were always people who were trying to expand their consoles uh-huh. and they doing it themselves, screwing and it up. Always a little weird. And yeah. So I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." I don't want to screw around with this. Let's just call Rupert and, and.
0: And was he happy to help? or? Was completely. It, wow. I That's mean, he's really amazing. been a
1: good friend of me and of the studio. Yeah. He was here in 1991. He tested the console. It was great. I don't think I've ever seen tech guys more freaked out than the. Day he was <laughs> sure. <laughs> and I was completely freaked out as well. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. It's
0: just. You don't want to get a. Failing yeah, you like grade. A failing grade. Yeah.
1: He put a tone through it and uh-huh. worked on the console, and then he said, you know what, Steve? I think you can keep it. Beautiful. Wow. So that was 91. Then he helped us again in 96. I guess it was, or 95. I don't know. Put the two consoles together. So that was wonderful. Yeah. Then uh, I bought one of his in 2008. I bought uh, a 5088 or 5058 or something like that. Sorry. Where's that? Of like one of his new Neve consoles, okay, and I put it in the what became one of the restoration rooms. Ah, was, that's okay. I love the sound of it, and I wanted people to sort of uh, do like bus mixing yeah, it, you, yeah. Know? like bring their Pro Tools rigs and then use the sixteen outputs yeah, to run through the neve thing, so
0: oh, excellent. and then and did you already have clients lined up when you opened it, or was it just like winging a prayer, and
1: what's the magic shop? yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, by, by like, that point, point, eighty seven, eighty eight, I had a really good client base. Okay. And people who liked either my engineering or my producing and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I had a client base, and it was a good thing that I did because it was really hard to get people to come in here for the first year, year and a half. Apart from people you knew or even with them? Apart from like, me. What are you doing down there? I was yeah. mostly doing my own sessions here. yeah. You know, it was really hard to get established artists to come here. And
0: why was that? Just because they're like, well, you're not associated with any label or or whatever. That's all you did. No problem. Good. Well, then, who was uh, like? Was there a breakout artist who came in finally? Was it Sonic Youth or something? Or like?
1: What happened was this: I did a record with Ron Levy from Rounder, of Charles mm-hmm. Brown, the the amazing R and B pianist singer. And Dr. John was on it. It was one of my favorite Magic Shop records. Oh, wow. And um, it's called All My Life. It got nominated for Yammy. And, uh,
0: Shortly after you uh, opened? Yeah, this was okay.
1: 1990, I think. Or okay. Maybe, yeah, I think 89 or 90. And so we made that record. And then after that, this wonderful band called The Grace Pool came. I and mean, they made a record. They were on Warners. And then Lou came down. Lou Reed, I remember, yeah. yeah. Lou came mm-hmm. with uh, Roger Moutinot. Lou Reed came with Roger Moutinot to check out the studio. And so Lou uh, decided he was happy to record, and he wanted to make the record here. So Lou made Magic and Loss. Then pretty much right after that, uh, the Ramones came here with it. Mondo Bizarro, yeah. Right, and then pretty much right after that, Sonic Youth came with Butch Vig and mm-hmm. did Dirty, and then Suzanne Vega came. And I did some stuff with her, and then uh, Mitchell Froom took over, and and that turned out to be ninety nine point nine. And after those records were done, then I then I had a business.
0: Yeah, for sure. Did you already have relationships like with Lou or like with the Ramones and that kind of? No, not, oh, no. Oh, really? Not, not at interesting. All. No. I didn't okay. know anybody. Huh. And what um, were you engineering and mixing on those usually?
1: I didn't, I didn't, you know, outside of Suzanne, I didn't work on any of them. Oh
0: you oh okay. They which were just coming the, here for the studio.
1: All right. Yeah, which was just wonderful. Yeah. I mean, you know, besides I could finally take a little break. It was really great to have uh, you know, amazing engineers and producers yeah. here to sort of uh you know, break the room in. Sure. You know. Well I would imagine that
0: sort of word of mouth spread about, hey, this is an amazing place, this board you gotta see in the live room
1: and Yeah. You know, in those days, I never let anyone take a picture of the console. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I bet. I don't think anyone could take a picture of the console that I knew anyway until maybe 98, 99. Okay. My thing was like, you want to see the console? Well, then come here and Come here and book time. your set. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't until the internet where it was clear that that was a dumb strategy, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to I had to, you know, surrender to the idea that, you know the picture is free. Everything's free. Sure. The music's free. Yeah, it's all free, yeah. free, it's free, all free, free. It's all
0: free. Right. Whatever. Well what were there any producers who sort of you developed a relationship
1: with who did repeat business or Oh yeah. Yeah. So John and Yellow, who's here today for the last session. Yeah. He started coming in the early nineties and doing great alt rock records. Mitchell Froom and Chad Blake did three or four records here. Okay. A number of Ron Sexsmith records, two Suzanne records, mm-hmm. uh, the Cheryl Crow record. And um, um, then one day Chad uh, was ill, I think, and um, so I got to engineer and record a James Bond song. Okay. Cheryl did Tomorrow Never Dies, so I was lucky enough to do that. That was really fun. And then... Uh, yeah, so they came a lot, Dave Sardi came a lot, um Bark Market and Sleep and really fun sort of cool stuff. You know, it's funny as you, if you go through the years what is it, bud? You I, I just say deny. say deny. Yeah. Um if you go through the time periods, um and I've been doing that a bunch, um, I've been looking through the paperwork and the you know, mm-hmm. sessionographies and stuff, and um, which, by the way, is all going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
0: Really? Is that that's for sure? Yeah, excellent. They,
1: they've taken it. Already. Oh, that's great. Yeah, they 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 came by. We sat. We talked. Because I was going to
0: say you're going to have to do a coffee table book or something. Or you well, I was an, really wonderful. Encyclopedia. Yeah. I
1: mean, I there. You know, there are so many great people that have come through this place, and I'm not blowing smoke up my own ass. It's just. It's, it's a really fact. documented. I yeah. mean, I we took out the session things. I had forgotten that I did a session with John Cage here. Yeah, wow. I mean, like agabaga, how could I forget that? Right, uh-huh. one of the most influential composers and thinkers and innovators. I mean, I completely forgot about him. Yeah, you know, there's just so many great people who have got, you know gone through this place. So. They came by, they looked at all my stuff, and so all of it's going to go to the Hall of That's Fame. Great. That's great. It's really, really great, Then people can go there, they can look at it, you know, Yeah. Re- use it for research and stuff like that, and I'm happy that it's going to kind of be in a safe place. Yeah. Well, how, was there,
0: like, at least a decade or more where things were going well, and it was, you know... Yeah, Records were being made, and it was before the business had completely changed.
1: Yeah, there was at least that. I mean, it was just... The the alt-rock thing was really fun around here, because... Yeah. And it was mostly, you know, post-Nirvana record, right? Mm hmm I was so happy I got to tell Dave that, you know, his record had impacted my life so positively. The Nirvana record? Yeah, before I even knew him. I didn't know him then. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden, the record companies were funding bands with flannel shirts, but mm-hmm. they those were bands that wanted a, I know, a vintage Nif. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And they needed a live room. Yep. So all of a sudden the things that seemed like sort of nutty in nineteen eighty eight really made a lot more sense by the time nineteen ninety two rolled around. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we had fun. We had a blast. It was great here. And there was like the really cool records and many, many records were made and the studio was stupidly booked. You know there would be holds on holds, yeah, for people yeah. to come. Bands
0: booking it out for a month or whatever, and the, yeah. right.
1: And most records lasted at least a month, six weeks, yeah. just for the tracking. Mm-hmm. Um. And sometimes, you know, it, it was it was just a really fun time, and lots of really great records uh, that came out of that period. Uh, I did a couple of Monster Magnet records, which are really fun. Um. Yeah.
0: What what would you say was like the turning point where suddenly you're like, hey, what's going on? I mean, besides 9-11, which is a whole different thing, but what, right. what about as far as the industry?
1: Well, the industry really, I guess it was maybe 97 or 98 or something. They just stopped making rock records mm-hmm. and they started making these boy band records. Yeah. And once again, that's not something that the studio is really designed to do. No. Uh-uh. So then the money kind of dries up, and then you have to sort of figure out different ways. And it was during that time period that I opened up the living room with my wife, Jennifer. Right, right. So Which the, we first living about. Room, yeah, yeah. the first living room opened up in 98, and it's not a coincidence. Yeah. Right? It really was very, very helpful to the magic shop. And there's a lot of cross pollinization in those days between artists back and forth, you know, and it wasn't, sometimes, I mean, lots of times, I didn't get paid. You know, I would just spec time for artists that mm-hmm. were at the living room that I really thought were great. <clears throat> Excuse me.
0: What was the impetus to open the living room? Was it specifically to have a really good-sounding venue for sort of singer-songwriter-type yeah, well, artists?
1: Yeah, I think at that time period, there wasn't a lot of stuff being done with singer-songwriters. I know that's hard to imagine right now. No, I can see, yeah. Yeah, but there just Post-grunge wasn't. Post-grunge and middle of boy band. Yeah, there and, yeah. just wasn't, so... Um, and I had met Jennifer at Sinead, where she was booking bands. Oh, yeah, I played there. So mm-hmm. that's that's where I met her, and then, and then together, and then it closed, so together we mm-hmm. decided we would just open up a small place where we can continue to have singer-songwriters. Place. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that was in 98, and that was the very first living room, which was on Allen and Stanton. Okay, okay. And would
0: you sort of discover new people to record here? Is that what you meant? Or yeah,
1: I mean, there was a lot of stuff where people would play, yeah. you know, at the living room, then come here and make their record, and then, uh-huh. or people would come make a record here, and then they would go play over there. There was a lot of, you is know, is that how
0: you met Nora, or was she already <clears throat> Jennifer met Nora to okay.
1: Jesse, Jesse Harris, and um, yeah, she played the little place a bunch of times. I mean, when yeah. she played at first, she didn't even look at the audience. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But this, the thing was about her is, like, if you closed your eyes, it was completely transportative. And she was just, you know, it was just amazing. Yeah. I heard her sing. Yeah. And nobody knew who she was for a while. You know, nobody knew. Mm-hmm. Nor nobody really ended up caring all that much, but...
0: Well, they do now. <laughs> right.
1: But, you know, about... I mean, about who her dad was and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So nobody really cared really much about that but she was just such an incredible singer at that point Mm -hmm. you know um and she's made a couple albums here at least yeah she made the fall foreverly she made and she made the one with billy joe upstairs which was great Mm -hmm. and then she made her little willies record here with the band from the that sort of formed at the living room so yeah yeah i mean so yeah the living room really impacted the the studio here in a very positive way
0: yeah well and then uh, so we get up to nine eleven, and that obviously just was devastating for the everyone i mean yeah especially I mean, here down yeah.
1: down here and once again everything just stopped yeah i mean literally and i i mean i i had to go um i remember coming down here with the you know the mask on yeah i had to bring my lease in order to get down below Houston. uh-huh and I remember all the gigs stopped, all the bookings literally stopped. They were all canceled, yeah. And I couldn't get anybody to come here. So I got a nine eleven loan to sort of help me continue for the first four months. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we slow. And then we had a meeting here, literally, with me and Matt Wells and the staff, and we sat around and I said, "Do you think we should continue?" 'Cause I said, I don't know if anyone's gonna come here for a at while. that
0: point no one knew like how
1: long, you know yeah. it was gonna last. Yeah. And I said, I don't know if anyone's ever gonna come here again. So what do you wanna do? And they were all awesome. They were like, Yeah, fuck yeah, we're gonna keep going, let's yeah. keep going. So literally in that if that was September, by that November we were building this first restoration room, yeah. which turned to be the Blue Room. And you had already
0: sort of been into that work.
1: Yeah, in 95 I met Alan Lomax, mm-hmm. and I was hired by the Lomax family to work on the Lomax archive, and I did about 130 Alan Lomax, Alan Lomax CDs. Yeah. I was sort of the engineer sound geek on those. Yeah, yeah. And I, that was an amazing experience and, and uh, really sort of set me off on this road that I'm sort of so passionate about now. Yeah. Um. So yeah, so I started doing that archiving stuff, and then I was doing a bunch of it... Uh, uh Sam Cook and stuff for Abco and then in two thousand and three is when or two maybe is when we did that Stones Remastered series here at the yeah, studio.
0: Yeah. And are all your Grammys for the archiving, the restoration? I have stuff? one for
1: mixing. Oh, okay. I got one for mixing and three for archiving. Okay. What's the mixing one? Uh Clasmatics.
0: Oh, okay. The best world music record. Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah, that one's for mixing. I lost this year. <laughs> I brought my kids to the Grammys. Yeah? Yeah? <laughs> oh, I didn't want to lose in front of my kids. Oh, yeah. No. I lost to that guy, Dylan. Oh, right. Yeah, he might have a career, right? That guy, I don't know. Yeah, that guy, Dylan. He didn't yeah. need it. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Well, was there a point where it sort of was like, hey, you know, things are really getting bad? Because I know the, li- well, the living room closed when at the end of 2014, or it moved.
1: Yeah, we moved it to Williamsburg. Yeah, and it was a total disaster. I mean we just yeah. lost all our money and and it was a wonderful place that we we built. It was more like a venue. Yeah. And it was very hard competing with the Barry Presents people for gigs and stuff. Yeah I mean yeah. they have the thing so locked down. You know, they have this stair step thing so freaking locked down. Yeah. It's just impossible to compete with them really. Yeah. Wow, so, even at the venue. Yeah, because, you know, you start out at the Mercury, then you go to the yeah. Music Hall of Williamsburg and the Bowery Ballroom, mm-hmm. and you go up the stair step, and eventually, yeah. you know, you play the Enormo Dome. Somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it really works really well for bands, and it really works well for managers and booking agents, <laughs> because the <laughs> whole them. thing gets all set up for you. Sure, yeah. Right? Well, that's great for them, but it's really pretty awful for, like, a mom-and-pop thing like we were. So yeah. We had a really hard time. Getting the size, uh, you know, the kinds of acts that could fill this place was like 270 people, so it was yeah. a lot bigger of a place. And did you run into the same problem there with the rent continually going? The rent up was and... ridiculously yeah. high. Yeah, and we paid it because we really had, we really believed, and we had faith that we thought it was going to work there because we had a going business for 17 years up to that point. Yeah, you know? and we really thought it was going to work, and we had lots of positive feedback about moving there but we clearly moved there at uh, a really bad time and um, to Williamsburg yeah I mean it, you know all the really fun stuff was gone yeah and it's really yeah. transitioning into it's not yet a place that can support like a lot of businesses all the it's, businesses on my block there yeah were having trouble yeah yeah
0: I mean, it's sort of getting to be, at least parts of it are getting to be looking a little bit like Soho now, you know, some of the same chain stores and that kind
1: of thing. Right, but you know the thing about these chain stores, yes, that the thing is they don't have to make any money. Yeah,
0: that's true. Right,
1: so they, they want to have American Apparel or some bullshit in Williamsburg, right, and it doesn't really matter whether they make any money. It's just a not. cool zip code, and it, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. And it's a lost leader for them, and they're fine. Yeah. So yeah. once again, that's not something like a mom and pop store can, learn, yeah. or a venue or whatever it is can actually do. So. Well, now we got to
0: talk about how. I mean, the, the sad part about all of this is that this okay. historic place is, you know, gone now or will be as of tomorrow. Um, and I know I don't want to get into particulars, but is it just? I mean maybe there isn't even anything to say it's just Manhattan is not what it used to be and nor is the the music business the same as it used to be. Yeah,
1: I mean I think the music business has really, you know, been very damaged and damaged itself and is worth, you know, the value of the music business is so much smaller than it used to be. Yeah. You know, it keeps shrinking by 10% of its value each year now for how many years? Like yeah. over 10 years, right? Think about like when I started and here at the magic shop, there were ninety separate operating record companies with like A and R people and A and R administration people and logos and all that fun stuff, right? Yeah,
0: budgets for records, budgets, huh? right? <laughs> Artist development, yep.
1: Now there are four, right? And soon there'll be three. Yeah. We like to say around here, eventually there'll only be one, and it'll be called FBI Records. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although maybe it'll be Trump records, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, you know, yeah, that's a part of it. My particular situation is, is more of a real estate situation. Yeah. It's like the value of real estate down here is exorbitant. And and also what people seem to value here in this neighborhood is real estate. Yeah, And so the idea that they would value a place like the Magic Shop or want to have a place like the Magic Shop continue... It's just not happening anymore. Yeah. So that's why you see so few, you know, artist-based things down here anymore.
0: Well, I thought you put it really well in the post on the Facebook page announcing the closure about that. The balance of, you know, art and commerce is not quite what it used to be and what a lot of us would like to see it continue to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's sort of my hope is that we can sort of figure out some way to get it back in line because it's really out of whack at this point. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I see all these people sort of wandering around down here. You know, there's so many tourists down here now. It's crazy. You know? Yeah. And they're all looking. They're walking around. They're looking and they're looking. Like, oh, that
0: used to be right. something. <laughs> right.
1: And they're looking and they're looking, but they're looking for a New York that's not here anymore. Yeah. So, yeah. And then they just go shop. Sure. Right. Yeah, and they go that's and right. they spend more money. money on stupid stuff that they don't even really want. Right? Yeah. So I don't know. You know, I'm... I, I know for me, it's uh, you know, it's too late for me. My hope is that for the kids in Bushwick and the kids in Astoria, that it's not too late, and that somehow they sort of stop this sort of eating of of the culture, you know, in exchange for real estate profits. Yeah. Um. I, you know, my suggestion is really to like set up these like sort of art zones, where they're sort of protected, government protected zones where. Kids can get leases and, you know, they're protected from, from like, profiteers and stuff. And they, you know, maybe that's, like, a revolving thing. They get a two-year lease. Mm-hmm. And they get two years to figure out what it is that they really want to do or something. And that, you know, and that the end game of the thing is not that the particular piece of real estate that they've been working in is all of a sudden stamped as, like, cool. Yeah. Hip available right <laughs> and you know because that's i think a little bit screwy so. yeah yeah i don't know well what's next for you uh i'm going to continue my archiving business and Great. restoration business with with my staff here we've been out con- looking very hard at a at spaces trying to find a place to move it i don't need a lot of space but uh we do need a, a building with an elevator and about 1,200 square feet or so. And mm-hmm. We're going to continue doing the preservation, <clears throat> archiving work, and and restoration mixing stuff. There. Out of the city, or do you know? I've been looking in here oh, in Manhattan. Okay. I've been looking, and in, in today I just went out to, what's the area under the Manhattan Bridge called? Uh, Dumbo? Right. Yeah, yeah. there. Yeah, I mean, I go to Hoboken. I just go anywhere. I don't, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that part of it, I, I want to continue. Yeah, for sure. Well, good.
0: So right. everyone's going to want to know what it's like to work with Bowie and Tony Viscone. Well, I mean,
1: I, <laughs> you know, I think you have to talk to Kabir because, you know, <clears throat> Kabir was in the room. Oh, okay. Right? If you want to really know the specifics of what that was like, you, you have to talk to Kabir. Yeah. I mean, I can only say that it was really an honor to have him here. Yeah, absolutely. I had always been a big Bowie fan, so mm-hmm. it was crazy for me to see him here and have him upstairs. And, I know, I know. Um, and, you know, we signed these NDAs so no one could say anything. Yeah. And we did really well. I mean, yeah. I'm very proud of my staff. They really did great at, you know, keeping this secret and yeah, and uh, yeah, it was pretty amazing. I'm, you know,
0: sort of almost a fitting tribute to everything the Magic Chop has done in a way. Well, it's
1: yeah, it's weird, you know, Black Star and the, oh,
0: I know coming out at the same time. And I was in here literally a week before that came out and before he passed away, and we were all talking about oh Bowie and he used this microphone and then it was so. Just such a shock, just no, it can't be possible.
1: Yeah, it really was shocking. Yeah. I bought the Black Star Record the day it came out and I listened to it and it was really dark and Yeah. I didn't really understand it and then Yeah. Kind of clearly a few days later after he passed it, it was pretty clear made what made a lot more sense about. Yeah. And what he was trying to say to us and what kind of message he was trying to give his last kind of message. So
0: Yeah. 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 I Sounds mean, great. <laughs> well it's a place. sounds like the live room <laughs> it sounds like the live because it's a yeah. played record I mean that's yep. the
1: thing it like goes back to the sort of the first thing we were talking about right in our conversation here it's absolutely like a, it's a bunch of people in a room interacting and creating something unique yeah so you know I'm toast but there's still other places that you can <laughs> go to you know Walter's place is still available and then and then the power station is still available right and, yeah um you know, I'm sure Electric Lady is not going anywhere. Um,
0: well, I think you're far from toast. I think you have a lot more Grammys and that kind of thing in you. <laughs> I think so. All right. Well, sure. I appreciate that. I'm kind of like... I'm looking forward to
1: seeing the next chapter. Okay, well, you know what? I think what would be cool is like when we find the space and what's up and running, we'll have you come by. and then Ah, can, that'd be great. We could sit around and talk about, like, yeah. here's my new this. Yeah. Instead of, like... Buh, buh, I know. Buh, 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 <laughs> buh. <laughs> yeah.
0: We'll end on that high note. Up okay. to the future. Thanks right. very much, man. Thank you. Great you talking for to coming you. By. Wow. And that's the show. Mr. Steve Rosenthal. Uh man, that guy is just so interesting. Got so many stories. I could have spent, you know, days with him. <laughs> he really does need to write a book about all of uh his experiences. Anyway, the themagicshop.com. Uh, I think the website is probably going to still be up for a while. You can, of course, see the Sonic Highways episode. Um, Steve is not going away, as you heard. Going to be continuing on with um, some really important work that he does in archiving and preservation, which is uh, itself really interesting. Just He's not going to have that famous live room anymore, um, not going to have the ginormous Neve spaceship control board, which was... a uh, so amazing, such such a feature of that studio and what drew people literally from all over the world to record there. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, um, Yes, what else? Got some shows, the website, usual things are happening, as I said. Uh, If you are listening to this on iTunes, go ahead and um, rate it, leave a comment or something like that, share it with your friends. It's free, why not? And that's it. I'll see you guys the next time around on Make It Big.
1: Unnatural lovers, imaginary friends, will soon discover where the kindness ends. Unnatural lovers, stay in school, just to discover you gotta take a
0: lot of heat to be cool. and